Hello, and welcome again to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powles, uh, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers, um, joined again by my colleague, Associate Essie Maravara, and once again, a very special guest, Samantha Nguana from Shine Lawyers. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for coming back so soon. Thanks for having me. The purpose of today, just an emergency podcast, and it's going to be a pretty short one, um, we wanted to talk about the legislative changes uh, um, to the Fair Work Act and to also the anti-discrimination laws the new government have brought in as part of their election promises, and um, they're going to have some fairly far-reaching consequences for employers, and so we just thought we'd hit the high notes now. Um, and you know, if anyone needs some advice, they can they can reach out next year. Um, very lucky to have Sam back because a lot of these changes uh, relate directly to sexual harassment and respect at work. Um, and just given that you were so helpful on our last podcast about sexual harassment, we thought you'd be a great person to come back and talk about these changes. It's two um, two things really. The firstly is the Anti-Discrimination and Human Rights Legislation Amendment, um, Respect at Work Bill 2022, which was passed a couple of weeks ago. Um, And then literally a week later, um, the Fair Work Legislation Amendment, Secure Jobs, Better Pay Bill. So this is all part of the same fundamental political political agenda, but they're, they're different bills for... For a specific reason, and and the one I suppose we're really interested in today is that is the amendments to the Fair Work Act because that's the one that really directly relates to um, employment law. However, they're inexorably linked with the um, Respect at Work Bill amendments as well. So we'll talk about both of those. And I guess it's the starting point, and I and probably the most controversial sort of political side of. Um, the the amendments relate to the changes to enterprise agreements and industrial action. Uh, that's a very um, tense area of employment law politically, and uh, the ALP have, have you know made no secret of the fact that they they want to increase uh, employees and unions' capacity to um, force employers to bargain and then take industrial action. Um, as a result of that, and, and they've identified that as a way of overall increasing employee leverage and therefore increasing employee um, share of benefits, if you like. So the key change, and before I talk about the change, I've noticed this with a few clients so far that have been asking me, but it's important, I think, first to talk about some of the aspects of the status quo that actually may not be very well known to people and and fundamentally that there's two parts of this that i think are really important firstly an employer at the moment there is some scope to compel an employer to enter into a a, a bargaining um situation of you know to, to commence bargaining towards an enterprise agreement even if they're unwilling and that's done through a, a majority support determination um, at the fair work commission but a really important thing to understand is that multiple employers at present, or really for the last decade, uh, multiple employers can't be compelled to bargain together for the same agreement. In any situation where there's been a multi-enterprise agreement, which is multiple employers together covered by the same agreement, that's that's at present at the initiative of the employer only, and they've really dipped in popularity a huge amount over the last decade. Um, and a lot of that is related to the way that the better off overall test has been applied by the Fair Work Commission and really a, a sense in the commercial community, in the business community, that enterprise agreements, uh, that there's no point doing them. There, there, there's no advantage for the employer of doing them. And there's certainly no advantage for multiple employers to be tied together in one agreement unless there's very specific industrial reasons why that would be preferable. What's changed, and probably the biggest changes, has been the capacity now for unions to apply for mechanisms before the Commission to compel multiple employers to bargain together. And that's the big change. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail because that would take a whole podcast. When I thought about it, really, I think 
it's not even a podcast topic. If, you, if you've got legitimate um, commercial concerns about how these changes might affect you in business, I think you really need to get some um, legal advice because a lot of it is going to be about industrial strategy and setting that strategy in place in advance of anything happening. Um, so I only really want to hit, as I said, hit the high notes. But in effect, probably the most interesting interesting one is this new single interest um, authorization. So the union can apply to the commission and and name employers that um, they think should be basically compelled to bargain together. And the commission can make that single interest employer authorization um, on the initiative of the union for the first time. Now, there's a couple of really important tests for that. First, that the union have to be involved and, and, and have to represent at least some of the employees. The second thing, and this is what one of the, the key changes to the bill, is it needs the majority support of a majority of each of the employers wish to need to have support for the bargaining. Now, at first drafting, the idea was the majority of employees overall had to agree, which means that an employer could have been compelled to bargain even if every single employee um, was not in support of it. That, that has been one of the one of the changes that's actually been negotiated to the bill, and I, and I think is quite a sensible one. So now, the majority of each employer, each employer's employees, have to be in favour of it. And I think that's particularly important where you've got some larger employers, and then a quite a sort of a smaller employer off to the side. Um, the the second part of it is there's a com- there's a common interest test. Um, the, the Fair Work Commission must be satisfied that the employers have a clearly identifiable common interest. Public interest, um, it, it has to not be contrary to the public interest, which is a, which is a big part of a lot of Fair Work Commission tests. Um, and the employers have to be, the operations and business activities of each employer must be reasonably comparable. Um, with, with the other employers. And it's going to be really hard to know how this is going to fall out in practice. Uh, it, it would appear that things like the nature of the operations, size, operational differences, geographic locations, some of those things are going to be key determinate, determinators. But we are not really going to see that until we start to get some decisions from the Commission. But I think that's, that's the interesting one to watch. Um, it also can only be given if... The, um, there's no written agreement in place between the employer and the union already to bargain on an agreement um, for a period up to nine months after the expiry of the nominal expiry date. So in where you actually are already negotiating an agreement with the union, um, you, you won't be compelled. And also it doesn't apply for two small businesses. So the employer must have at least 20 employees. Um, there's also a, uh, an exception that's been made right at the last minute to the construction industry that are not included in these changes. So I'm, I, I'm not sure what's happened behind the scenes there, but obviously some sort of political deal has been struck. Uh, so the construction industry are, are not covered. Now, those changes have been supported by some very interesting changes Um in relation to industrial action. And one of the key things is that the Fair Work Commission now have a greater discretion and a greater power to arbitrate disputes in situations that that are now known as intractable bargaining disputes. Um, There's some more robust conciliation process uh, as well that's been implemented. So in many ways, these sort of greater powers to resolve industrial action have been brought in to support the idea that perhaps there is going to be more industrial action. Um, and the the multi-enterprise, I mean, the rationale of the multi-enterprise changes as well is really to give the unions and the employees greater leverage in these industrial action situations, as I'm sure you can imagine when there you know, is one employer within an industry that's suffering a strike that that or industrial action generally that has a certain amount of impact. But if you bring multiple employers in the same industry into that bargaining agreement, into the same 
bargaining for the same enterprise agreement and there's industrial action across that entire industry, then that's going to have far more significant impact socially and potentially therefore give employees and give unions a greater sense of leverage. These additional industrial action um, arbitration powers are also going to support that employee leverage uh, because the capacity for fair commission to arbitrate in this situation of greater leverage is inevitably going to sort of push the pendulum a little bit towards the employee side. So no big surprise with a, with a change of government in this way and a, and a, and a, and a majority, um, a, a political party in power that, that has strong ties to the union movement that we'd see that. But as I say, that's just a really broad brushstroke of the changes. Um, Sam? Yeah, I just wondered, Brian, do, do you think that the intention behind this is really to see more employers start to make single enterprise agreements with their employees? Absolutely, absolutely, because they won't be exempt, they, they'll then be exempt. There, there is an exception, there's like an anti-avoidance provision which provides that they can't do the enterprise agreement just to avoid being in the, in the single interest authorization, which is quite interesting. And I don't exactly know what the enforcement um, of that is gonna look like. But I, I think it is, I, I, I think a big problem we've had since modernizations look back to 2009 has been just a disinterest on the employer side in bargaining. And that might be a flow through of the modern awards. I mean, the modern awards are probably a a more fair system than we've had before. There's there's less need for enterprise agreements when when the modern awards are a little more comprehensive. And I think we've just seen a, a decline, just a decline in interest. Um, and I think in particular the the, the changes, um, the the application of the better off overall test, mm -hmm. which provided and has provided really for the last at least six or seven years that the commission has to do a line by line analysis and the employees have to be better off overall on each element. And um, I've certainly been in a, in a few of these um, in the application process of a few of those where that seems to have been been the way. Um, the, the changes, I'm not gonna go through the changes in the boot, but there's some quite sensible changes to the, to the boot test as well in the sense that it is the emphasis back on the overall. Um, also the identification of the classes of employees that uh, um, need to be better off overall has been refined a little bit in, in the changes. But I think so, absolutely, Sam. I think just incentivizing agreement making generally, uh, well, as well as incentivizing on one hand and, and just having the capacity to compel yeah. on, on another hand. And especially, is going to make them... as you say, you're weighing that against the disadvantage of having to go through the bargaining process, having to go through the better overall test. What is the incentive to counterbalance that, to encourage yeah. employers to um, sort of lift paying conditions above the, the floor that's provided by the be interesting to see if it works yeah it will be it, it will be interesting and, and i'm really interested to see if it just results in a higher levels of industrial action although we've sort of seen that the last couple of years anyway i think um well especially with the cost of living crisis now yeah absolutely um so it'll be quite interesting and look it, it's if you go back to the late 80s and early 90s of Australia when, when enterprise bargaining became uh, a really big thing in the industrial spectrum, and that was because of the, the accords that the, that the Labor government at that time entered into with the unions to try and prevent, to, well, to try and keep a, a wrap on inflation at the time. And I mean, there's no, I'm not an economic expert at all, but there's no doubt that the need for employee representation and bargaining and an increase to, to conditions is inexorably tied with inflation in both ways because you're sort of thinking, okay, the cost of living is out of control, we need more money, but then that then fuels the cost of living escalating again. Mm -hmm. 
so it's, it's quite an interesting dynamic. Although but I think it is also a quite unusual system compared to compared to other countries where the the wage increases are locked in for a, a four year period, and so yeah. actually it it can in some ways deter wage increases in a way that might not be the case elsewhere. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. So you, so you think it might actually have a limit, it might in, in effect limit wage increases because they locked in for that period of time. Well, I think if, if you're not, about if you're not locked into a four-year agreement, you can have a dispute every year, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's just when we're it's, seeing um, these sort of crazy rises in inflation, just all of a yeah. sudden, it, yeah. it does change the environment quite a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. But I think it's going to be really interesting from that point of view. Um, and, and I think those tests in particular, like the reasonable comparability test and, and the common interest and, and those things, I'm really fascinated to see how that's actually going to work in practice. Because, and, and bearing in mind that a lot of people already are locked into agreements, a lot of employers are locked into agreements, they're not at nominal expiry yet. So it's going to take years and years probably to really flow out and for us to get a better understanding of what, what is reasonably comparable, what is common interest when it comes to employers. And there, there's going to be some interesting dynamics because normally in the multi-enterprise space, you, the, the employers have, have for themselves identified that common interest and that's why they're doing it. Whereas when it's somebody else telling them they've got a common interest and they don't necessarily agree with that, it's, it's going to create some interesting dynamics in bargaining rooms. Yeah, it's definitely so, a, a long game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but I think. Oh, look, I mean, that's all I really wanted to. I just wanted to talk about the, the broad brushstrokes. I think for us, certainly for our clients, there's some much more interesting, um, much more interesting changes. But I mean, why don't we talk about the respective work stuff and sexual harassment changes? Have you, I mean, have you looked much at the respective work bill itself, Sam? Well, it's... the respective work bill um, has brought in some some changes that were promised for some time. Um, I think when we when we had our last get together, um, we yeah. talked about the respective work inquiry and the recommendations of the sex discrimination commissioner, Kate Jenkins. Um, yeah. Really, after that enormous piece of work, her her kind of flagship recommendation was to introduce a positive duty to, on employers to prevent sexual harassment. The idea being that laws that said sexual harassment is unlawful had, had not really solved the problem and put all the onus on effectively the victim, survivor, who yeah. had already gone through it to then complain, to then litigate. And in the post Me Too climate, um, whether a different approach, putting the responsibility on employers, first of all, to eliminate the risks of sexual harassment um, might be more effective. But the last government um, implemented a, a number of the recommendations, but not this one. Right. <laughs> um, and so that w that was one of the commitments of um, the the Labour Party when campaigning, and um, one of the first things that they um, were were keen to action. So that's that's the that's the major change in yeah. in the respect at work um, reforms to anti discrimination and human rights legislation. Um, but there are others actually which didn't didn't get a lot of attention because this this is yeah. the big one um i've got a question can i, can I ask you a question about away. what you think about the um the positive duty because and i've you know i've been aware of that that in, in from that sort of philosophical background but obviously now that it's in place we as lawyers start thinking about what does this actually mean from a for a practical background. There's a lot of the changes to sexual harassment, which we'll talk about now, having some facility within the Fair Work Act to make claims other than the stop sexual harassment claims. What interests me about the positive duty, we were talking about this, uh, we talked about Section 106 of the Sex Discrimination Act um, last time you were on the podcast, and S and I were talking about this the other day in the sense that 
106 provides for vicarious liability of employers um, if there's a sexual harassment occurs in connection with the employment um, and that can only be discharged if all reasonable steps are taken. Um, so the, the, the way it's always been, I suppose, from a procedural point of view, is you have to find the perpetrator and, and sue the perpetrator and establish liability against them and then seek the employer as vicariously liable. Are, are these changes going to you know, create some scope now for the employer to just be responsible alone as a primary respondent? Uh, I, I think they do make a change to that, actually, because that yeah. still relied on the victim commencing a claim and yeah. then that could be a defence available to employers to invoke. Um, yeah. Whereas the introduction of the positive duty is that it's unlawful for employers not to take action as a yeah. first step and, and there are new powers for the Australian Human Rights Commission to monitor, um, assess and enforce the implementation of a positive duty. So I, I think actually that distinction, um, sort of being proactive rather than reactive, um, yeah. and whereas before it, it may have been that training was undertaken, as I say, I think I said when we, we spoke last time, I've often seen employers sort of present um, a PowerPoint of yeah. the sexual harassment training, but I haven't ever seen that succeed as, as a yeah, defence. Yeah. Whereas I think the idea now is to encourage, a, in a sense, cultural change by taking an approach that does seem to have worked in the work, health and safety field. Yeah. Um, to well, that's what it's comparable to, isn't it? The positive yeah. duty it really sounds like a work, health and safety um, approach approach yeah which is which is what it should be really shouldn't it? it but it's not directly comparable i don't think because well I, I guess we've got to wait and see but um the work health and safety regulators really have a lot of teeth yeah when it comes to enforcement um i i don't know whether there's been additional funding for the Australian Human Rights Commission to enforce yeah. this positive duty. I mean, it would be logical that if you're you're creating a huge array of new powers that that's going to require resourcing. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the Australian Human Rights Commission has been really under-resourced for, for quite a period of time. I, yeah. Some of our complaints at the moment have been waiting 10 months to be allocated. I was I was going to say the same thing. We, we, we've had the same experience. And I, did, I didn't want to say anything that sounded critical of the Human Rights Commission either, but... I, I don't think they're in control of how much resources they get, you know. Ultimately. No, that's right. And it does see it's 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 six, seven, eight, nine months yeah. um, before you get to a conciliation. And then if the complaint's terminated, you might be a year down the track and you're still... Yeah, absolutely. But that that's interesting. I don't want to... Um, derail what you know take you off track sam but that really interests me because one of the key things when it came to sexual harassment that i really noticed and this is not really from a substantive legal change but from a practice and procedure point of view with these new fair work fair work act and fair work commission powers because as we know it's much easier to get to the fair work commission quickly um there's been a lot of appointments you we're getting to conciliation now th three to four weeks is standard my understanding is that you can now bring a sexual harassment claim um, and seek the Fair Work Commission um, to deal with the dispute. If the dispute's not handled, they issue a certificate and then you can bring the claim in the federal court. So does, it seems like very akin to the general protections regime, but in relation to sexual harassment. Is that, is that how you've read it as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it how it works out because at the moment all we have are the legislative amendments rather than guidance from the Fair Work Commission about about the procedure yeah. but absolutely yes and it it does look like a very interesting innovation because although these changes are made to the Fair Work Act they have 
directly lifted um, not just the definition of sexual harassment from the Sex Discrimination Act, but also um, similar factors in terms of um, limitation periods and then the period of time between when you get issued with a certificate to yeah. progress in the federal courts. So it, it does look like um, effectively an, an alternative mechanism to yeah. reroute through the Fair Work Commission what yeah. was what has until now been exclusively the preserve of yeah. the Australian Human Rights Commission. Um, although there is a there are a couple of differences under the Sex Discrimination Act as it is now. Um, costs are recoverable, so the, the ordinary cost rule yeah. in litigation applies, whereas we know that's not the case in, in yeah, yeah, yeah. the Fair Work Act, under the Fair Work Act. So that's that's a big difference. And I guess the other unknown at this stage is how compensation will be calculated, because yeah. these changes are under the Fair Work Act, and it provides a mechanism by which compensation can be awarded, loss remuneration can be awarded. There's also a remedy whereby um, employers can be ordered to act to redress loss or damage. Um, but there's not as yet any guidance on what that's going to look like in practice. Um, and, you know, logically, could say to look to the Sex Discrimination Act for guidance on compensation awards, but yeah. there's still going to be quite quite a deal of uncertainty around that. I would have thought. Well, absolutely, and and you know the, the default position of the Fair Work Act, I think five forty five is the court can order anything it considers appropriate. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it would it would make you think that those 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 judges are going to um, refer to matters un brought under the sex discrimination it, it, would, it would be weird it's, wouldn't it to suddenly depart from yeah and in effect they are the same judges as well i mean the the what's the real fundamental change i think is that initial process and the other thing that interested me because we had a we had a chat offline about about the stop bullying regime and the stop and the new stop sexual harassment regime that that, that came in in the last tranche of changes and I know that, that, that you've previously said there's sort of an inherent foolishness because as soon as the employment ends, that those causes of action sort of fundamentally expire. And, you know, I've always seen them as being, you know, fundamentally conflict resolution provisions rather than legal remedy provisions. But the, the, the interesting thing here is you can bring the application to the commission as, as both a stop and then seeking remedies too. So you, the Commission's then got that capacity. If something happens, if the employment ends, if it becomes untenable, the application can then convert into something different, which I think is is quite interesting too. I, I think it is interesting. And um, I mean, what seems to be done is take the stop sexual harassment order out of the stop bullying um, mechanism, but replicate it elsewhere in in the Fair Work Act. So it's it's a freestanding process, um, but it looks it looks pretty much the same as the, the stop bullying legislation yeah. was. Um, but yeah, it 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 does it does look like you could do both in one venue, um, which if yeah. previously you had to go to the Fair Work Commission for a stop sexual harassment order and to the Australian Human Rights Commission for a Sex Discrimination Act claim about sexual harassment, you're going, you're, you're having to do two procedures. Um, yeah, yeah. Here it might still be two procedures, but within the same Within same the same, venue. yeah. Yeah, and there's the normal provisions in the, in the 720s, wherever that is, 24, 25, about applicants having to elect one or the other. But I think this might be an answer to your First thing as well, in a way, in many ways, is this going to take some pressure off the Human Rights Commission? Um, 
if if the applications can be brought at first instance well, it's, and then resolved by the commission it's interesting because it i mean so this hasn't yet commenced i think yeah. royal assent was received on the 6th of december and um the new sexual harassment fair work sexual harassment process kicks in three months after that so so that'll be the start of march um right. but we're, we're already thinking on individual cases which would this be more you know would this actually be suitable for this case um and i think it is going to be a case-by-case -case decision because obviously there's there's a huge amount of uncertainty when it comes to a new process and particularly one where ultimately there's not much prospects of costs at the end of it yes. but equally um you know that old adage justice delayed is justice denied if if someone would otherwise have to wait for a year um yeah. to get get a remedy and this might potentially offer a much speedier resolution um particularly if the parties can come to an early settlement um then then yeah so i i think it is very interesting um yeah and i, I I wonder if you're right about that, that that's, that's been the reason that, you know, the Fair Work Commission is, is getting bumped up with some additional resources, um, yeah. more members, um, yeah. and that might be a way to, to cut through some of the backlog. Yeah. And we talked about it on the, on the podcast um, a, a few months ago too, Sam, that this, the whole stacking of the commission, because I mean, the commission was a little under-resourced for a while. I mean, I, I've only got to think back about five years ago and you'd be, you'd be waiting a long time to get your unfair dismissal on. Not ages, but it would be, you know, a good seven or eight weeks to get to your conciliation and then the directions and the rest of it. And, and, and they've increased that. But because those are fundamentally political appointments, the, the, I think prior to the 2016 election when the coalition thought they were going to lose... They made all of these appointments and then when they won they made all these appointments again um so i think it's uh it, it's it's interesting from that point of view that oh maybe sorry before the 2019 election sorry i'm getting ahead of myself um when when they that the, there was a there was a whole tranche of appointments now um people are theorizing about how can the alp government justify making more appointments and and really the best way to do that is to give them greater powers which is another part of this because of course the australian um building construction commission and the registered organization commission have now been disbanded and those powers have been given to the fair work commission so that's obviously one of the ways this fair work commission is becoming what um i think people said bill shorten was hoping to do when he even when he he got in last time was a sort of a super commission, if you like. Um, and that's the way that everyone can just keep appointing commissioners. So well, who knows, Sam, maybe you'll be next. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's interesting because there's, there's also some new new sort of panel member, panels created. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a new object um, to the Fair Work Act around gender equity as well. And um, so if perhaps there's more um, vacancies because there's more work for the Fair yeah. Commission to, yeah. to be doing, looking at um, looking at gender pay equity cases, which are pretty complex. Speaking of which too, SEU, I just caught you yawning there. Are we boring you? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> you were going to talk about the pay secrecy clauses too. I don't know if, if you, if, I don't know if you've looked at this, Sam, but, but SEU, how do they... Um, has, what, what's the pace? Yes, super interesting. Really yeah, interesting. no, I, I I definitely thought so. Yeah, so there's a new section, uh, 333D, um, which now prohibits the use of pay secrecy clauses in employment contracts. Um, and a contravention of that will be considered a, a it'll expose employers to um, civil penalties. Um, and that uh, also sets out under section 333C that. Um, any existing pay secrecy clauses um, won't have any effect. So essentially, employers will all have to have another look at their, their templates moving forward um, and whether those contain sort of pay secrecy or confidentiality clauses and how they can make sure that they're not um, breaching uh, this new section. 
Yeah, because it's interesting because I think your blanket vanilla, every aspect of this contract is confidential, yeah. will be caught by those provisions. So if you have a template that, that yeah. you need to change it. Because my understanding, and sorry if I'm re re repeating what you just said, Essie, but there's a, a prohibition that the clauses are ineffective, first of all, but there's a prohibition of any future clause that does it, which is a civil penalty provision. So contracts issued from when the when the section commences need to have that change. What we talked about the other day is is, is really what to do about existing contracts. And I, I think the advice I'm giving people is to issue a variation in relation to that. I don't know legally whether you have to because those contracts are not going to be, those contractual terms are not going to be effective. But, but the interesting thing is these rights under the page secrecy regime are workplace rights. Yeah, so, so the, the way that it kind of ties into that, uh, the new object that you were talking about, Sam, is the fact that they've also included a section that expressly states that, um, I mean, obviously that employees are allowed to disclose uh, their pay or any clauses in their contracts that relate to their remuneration um, and that, and also expressly states that it is a workplace right. So that means that it will be covered by um, general protections uh, provisions and um, employers can't take adverse action against their employees if they do talk about their pay. I thought um, that was super, super interesting because um, I, I have to say that I ex I sort of didn't really, I thought it might be a bit of a damp squib because there was talk about this in, in the UK almost a decade ago about how pay secrecy was going to be banned and then when it came out it wasn't actually a, a ban on these clauses at all it was just a mechanism whereby if people were disciplined um, because they had had a discussion about pay for the purposes of understanding discrimination then they couldn't be disciplined for it. So it, it oh, that's a bit so, disappointing. It was so far away from, from the yeah, band, a bit mild. <laughs> but I thought, okay, well, we'll see what it turns out to look like. But this is exactly what they said it was going to be. This is banned. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. will be unenforceable, and um, you better not put them in your contract. That's right. Which, um, but that's why I think. No, go on. Sorry. Well, just, I mean, I actually think that is quite significant when it comes to workplace culture because there's obviously an issue around gender pay equity but but equally that's not the only problem that's thrown up if if people are comparing their pay in the workplace. Yeah, no yeah absolutely but but i think it, it, it's got to have that impact of supporting i mean i it, it, it seems foolish to sort of say and look we've we're from the legal industry and we're one of the worst probably um, both in terms of the requirement for pay secrecy, you know, cloak and dagger stuff, and, and, and also in terms of gender pay equality. It's how can you say you're promoting gender equality in your workplace when you're prohibiting your employees from talking about what they're paid? Yeah. Um, it doesn't make any sense. I've had candidates, like even really junior candidates that I've interviewed for jobs, and you sort of, you, I've said, oh, what's your salary expectation? And they're like, I'm not allowed to talk about what I get paid. I'll get sacked immediately. Like, Oh, wow. Well, yeah, I had a candidate that told me that. I'm not going to say where, I'm going to say where she worked. <laughs> but it was one of the bigger firms. And, yeah. And, 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 and that is going to change. Particular sectors. No, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the cultural norms and, and actually express clauses in contracts that prevent people talking about their pay does, yeah. it, it's one of the factors that's entrenched um, the pay gap for so long. And, and, You've probably talked about this in one of your podcasts already, but we went backwards during the pandemic. So yeah. there's been this stubborn, pernicious pay gap hovering around 18, 19%, and it, it went back. It went, it, yeah. it went up above 20, I think. Um, yeah. So, so yes, yeah, something different, different mechanisms do need to be tried. Um, but but I guess I just thought this was actually pretty pretty brave in comparison to what. Yeah, well, it is. And the workplace, right, just in case any listeners are, are not getting what, where, where we're going with that, what that means is that really if somebody does talk about their pay and any type of adverse action is taken against them, then that then becomes um, an action under the general protections provisions of the Fair Work Act. So as an example, for instance, 
Um, someone might talk about their pay to their colleagues. Management don't like it very much. That person then misses out on a promotion because they think it was inappropriate for him or her to talk about the pay. That's in effect adverse action for prohibited reason. So it's it's you know obviously the the paradigm one is okay. Don't talk about your pay. You're fired. You know like what you're talking about in the English. That would then be an actionable adverse action. But adverse action could be any type of prejudicial alteration or or injury to employment doesn't have to be dismissal so it's quite interesting but that's why my recommendation to clients is to do the variation anyway um, just from an evidentiary point of view because if you were later faced with an adverse action claim saying I had this taken against me because of my desire to talk about my remuneration it's going to be quite difficult for that employer to then say on oh by the way yes we've got an old contract that prohibits it but we didn't mean it having that variation that actually acknowledges the legislation even if from a contractual perspective it's not strictly necessary i think is probably really going to be best practice um you know i don't think you have to issue new contracts to everybody i think you know just a simple variation would probably do it just to acknowledge those changes it is interesting and i guess be ready for the questions to be asked why am i paid this when so-and-so's paid this yeah that's, totally. that's what's going to happen and it it, <laughs> it it doesn't need to be linked to gender equality it can be for any reason yeah yeah and well that's just, and again a long game let's let's see how that pans out the other one essie that caught my attention in relation to a lot of our clients is going to be the fixed term contract yeah changes. yeah right that's huge. Um, in, some, in some sectors, that's going to be enormous. Yeah. So essentially, they're trying to limit the use of fixed term and maximum term contracts. Um, those contracts that are now ugh, any for a period of uh, more than two years are going to be prohibited under Section 333E of the Act. Um, so the new provisions uh, only allow for one extension of a fixed term contract and the total period can't extend beyond two years um so employers won't be able to offer three consecutive fixed-term contracts if it's for um what looks like substantially the same role um and they're trying to still i think they've done a they've done an all right job at trying to preserve um the legitimate use of fixed-term contracts uh, in certain circumstances they've provided for um exceptions to the limitation um and I won't list all of them because uh, that's boring. Um, but if an employee is engaged to perform a distinct and identifiable task that involves special skills, and that's an exception. Um, there's certain training arrangements. If, uh, and also if the uh, employee receives earnings that put them above the high income threshold at the time that they enter into that contract, that's another exception. Um, and government-funded work where the funding is payable for a period of more than two years um, and there are no reasonable prospects that the funding will be renewed after that. So there are, there are quite a few more, but um, there were just some that I thought were interesting yeah. and good examples. No, it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, as, and as a rationale, generally, I mean, we've, um, we've had this maddening situation in relation to fixed-term and maximum-term contracts and its interrelationship with unfair dismissal, and it has been a loophole um, yeah. to, to avoid unfair dismissal. And in some sectors, you have situations where you know you, you've got some employees that are eight, nine, ten years with back-to-back single. I've been year. surprised with what the Fair Work Commission has kind of deemed sort of. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, but but um, it's their, their hands have been a little tied. It's been a little bit of a, a yeah. past in terms yeah. of precedent. Uh, and you know, with the case, the Navitas case, and yeah. um, and since that, it, it, it's really required legislative reform. And you, and you get the sense from the commissioners when they write their decisions that there's almost one of those things, a little bit like the independent contractors, where they're really crying out for legislative yeah. reform because they can only go so far as a as a tribunal. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's interesting, but I think this really firmly closes the loophole. And it also explains why the high income threshold is relevant because you know, the high income threshold people, it's, it's a different regime. 
and you're not $162,000, you are talking about a, a relatively senior and sophisticated employee that probably it's okay to have a different regime over. Um, yeah. But, you know, that loophole didn't exist for those high-income threshold. Uh, it, and it that's, wasn't a relevant that's who factor, saying so. that, isn't it? It's, it's, about, um, it's about the sorts of practices that meant that people kept in insecure jobs. And that's yeah. the clues in the title of the bill, wasn't it? <laughs> Secure jobs. Yeah, yeah so, that's right. That's yeah. right. And, and it's interesting. I mean, I think some of the sectors I've seen that use them a lot is quite often higher education. Um, yeah. And a lot of that is tied to the sort of enrolment of students, funding, grant funding type arrangements. Um, one of the difficulties is that those particular enterprise agreements normally have really beneficial redundancy provisions. <laughs> so um, in many ways, the appropriate thing to do would be, okay, permanent employees, but if you've got to have a reduction of headcount, people get redundancy. But because the redundancy provisions are so high, that's been incentivizing the use of back-to-back fixed-term contracts. So I don't know how they're going to sort that out, but it's um I think it's it's sort of been driven by some and if you have a look at some of the university or sort of TAFE sector EAs, um, generally speaking, the redundancy provisions are really impressive, but nobody gets them because they're all on fixed term contracts. <laughs> Again, that's something that may change over time, but yeah. certainly I think. Uh, again, for our clients listening, if you do use fixed-term contracts a lot for any reason, um, check in. I mean, my advice generally based on the Navitar stuff has been about two years, just from an operational perspective, why, why not make them permanent, really? Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, from a cultural perspective, work-wise, I, I can't imagine, you know, having each year, am I going to be renewed? It's uh, it, it can't be good for for culture either so but we'll see that we have, anyway we're happy to give some advice on that yeah and for those same listeners i just to get some of the administrative stuff out of the way as well so um the fair commission will provide a, a sort of information st- statement as well oh, for yeah. fixed term contracts they love their information yeah. statements they love um, their information statements yeah <laughs> that'll be mandatory <laughs> no they're useful yeah yeah no they are they've been great yeah um yeah. and also uh it's the change There'll be a civil remedy provision as well. So um, employers who engage employees uh, on sort of extended or rolling fixed term contracts um, will be exposed to penalties if they if they breach these terms. Um, but there's also a 12 month transition period. So there's a bit of time to yeah. allow your current contracts to expire or find new arrangements. Great. We've covered a bit. What else was there? Is there anything else on your list, Essie, that you wanted to talk about? Oh, the small claims changes. Small claims. This might affect your practice, Sam, the small claims. What is it, the 100,000? Yeah, so they've lifted the cap on small claims procedures, where it used to be 20,000. So the listeners might already know uh, small claims is is a process that allows for... um, employees who wish to make a claim on entitlements that are owed to them. Um, and if the total amount that they're claiming is less than $100,000 now, then they can use the small claims procedure, which has, um, uh, it's it's less formal and um, it's not bound by the same rules of evidence. Um, and it can be conducted without lawyers. So it should help fact, people claw back you there. To, you yeah, you do, to, yeah. You leave for a pl- to appear in similar to the Fair Work Commission for the small claims procedure. But, of course, you can't get civil penalties in the small claims division. But, Essie, you talked about a case a few months ago where... Uh, yeah, there was a was finding that... That, um, that... Yeah, that an accessory could pay compensation. So, under five like an accessory found to be accessorily liable under 550 could be held to pay compensation under section 545 in the small claims division, which meant that, you know, in situations where a company's gone, been um, put into liquidation to avoid the claim, um, 
you can go behind that sort of corporate veil, if you like, and get to the director or to get to the accessory. And that was quite a groundbreaking decision. Um, obviously, they still can't order penalties against those people, but um, but to be able to get the compensation from the actual accessories, I think, is... And, and, and in, in concert with the fact the small claims division is going to be now for claims up to $100,000, that might that, that could have an impact. But if you've got no... Do you do underpayment work, Sam? Can I give you a plug on the podcast? Yeah, we do underpayment work as well. Um, and the, the firm also runs class actions, so that, that involves So, yeah, anyone listening and, and interested in... Um, underpayments, give Sam a call, or sexual harassment, as we said <laughs> last time. So, um, I think that's everything. Do you guys think that's everything? Was there anything else you wanted to say about the respect to work stuff, Sam? Well, I don't think it's as interesting, to be honest, as, as the positive duty. Um, so it's there's some harmonisation of time periods, because it was there was a six month period before which you required discretion for race, yep. disability and age um, but that was that had been extended for to 24 months for right. sex discrimination and now they're all going to be 24 months and, and similarly um, victimisation has been harmonised across um, all, across all four acts as well that, right. that it's a, a civil proceeding for victimisation, not just a criminal offence. But I'm not sure that that's as likely to be of interest to to your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, big news, lots of work ahead. Um, so I guess we'll leave it there. Um, and thanks again for joining us, Sam. Oh, we hope you can come back again soon. You're such a great contributor to the pod. And if anyone's interested in on that employee side, and particularly, um, I, I suppose, senior management um, employees um, looking uh, to make a claim against their employer or just looking for advice generally, then reach out to Sam and say, um, on the employer side, give us a call at PCC if you've got any inquiries about this stuff. And um, Merry Christmas to everyone. And I hope this sort of podcast has been a little bit helpful in relation to the new legislation. But obviously, if if you want a detailed advice, then give us a call. Otherwise, thanks for listening. and. We'll see you next time. And thanks for having me. It's been an absolute delight to catch up with you. Thanks, Sam.